Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined today in studio, as always, by President Wyatt. Scott, hi. Hello, Steve. It's good good to to be back together again. Good to see you again. Um, We are in our continuing series of podcasts about um, the changes that are facing higher education and the challenges that are facing higher education, we are concerned and 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 perhaps uh, because of our rather remote location, uh, maybe we're more concerned even than others about the perceptions of higher education. We, we uh, you and I have worked together at a couple of small colleges and you had to really want to get to both of them. <laughs> they weren't um, uh, Cedar City is a little bit more on the way uh, to something than the other place we used to work. But but you, yeah. if you want to go to to Southern Utah University, you have to want to come here. And so the public perception of higher education generally and the willingness to leave home to get it or to um, you know be discomforted in some way to to seek it out is important to us. And uh, there are a number of organizations that that help us sense how we're doing in the public's eye. And we have a guest joining us today that's uh, especially expert at that. Why don't you introduce her? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, we are so delighted to have Rachel Fishman with us today, Deputy Director for Research, uh, the Higher Education Initiative with New America. Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, What's the weather like in Washington, D.C. today? not too bad we're having a bit of a heat wave for january i mean this weekend it was in the 60s and now oh my that is a heat wave yeah so it's not bad for january i think it's gonna return to the cold next week but i um have spent lots of time in the midwest so i definitely don't miss the frigid winters of chicago Yeah, that is a place that can get cold, Chicago. Yeah, another place you got to want to go in the wintertime, especially. <laughs> you got to want to go to Chicago in the there. winter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of um, places where you want to go, yeah, Southern Utah University, um, we are really a residential school. Most people move here to study, and, and uh, you just don't roll out of bed and then walk across the street and register. You have to make a decision to move. Uh, to come here. So some of the perceptions and things about higher education generally are particularly interesting to us. But Rachel, why don't we um, let you introduce yourself. We'd love to hear a little bit more about New America and your path to becoming a deputy director for research there and what some of the goals are for New America. And then, then let's talk a little bit about some of the findings in this varying degrees report from last year. Sure. So I've been at New America now for eight years, seven or eight years. I've actually started losing track, which 
um, by Washington, D.C. standards, is really quite a long tenure. Um, New America is a public policy institute located in downtown Washington, D.C. Yeah, if you've, and, if you've been there eight uh, years, that's two presidencies. That's yeah, pretty that's good right. for D.C. That is good yes, for D.C. That's, right. so that's, that's both terms. Like, <laughs> exactly. And it spans, it spans like a lot of sort of an important segment of my life. So it, I haven't been deputy director for eight years. I've been, um, I started as, you know, sort of the entry-level, mid-level policy analyst. Um, and my, my knowledge and my role within the team has just grown and changed, changed over the eight years. And I haven't wanted to leave because the work that we accomplish here really invigorates me every day. And it's like every day I kind of, wake up and I'm like, what am I going to do today at work? And I'm glad to see my colleagues. Um, and it's such a, a great team. Um, and we really learn from one another. I mean, New America is actually quite large. It's over 150 people. And we look at all sorts of, of policies, domestic policies, foreign policies. Um, we have like a very large open technology institute that, that looks at tech. But we also have our largest program, which is education. And I'm, I sit within the higher education initiative. But really, we look at education policies. We have um, an early education team all the way through higher education. And we have a separate but overlapping workforce team um, that looks at not only sort of the degrees um, and, and uh, uh, workforce um, initiatives, that are going on in the United States, but also looks at apprenticeships, which is, you know, given the current administration, is uh, very important. So, I mean, I was I became policy analyst under the Obama administration, and now we're in the Trump administration, and now we have, you know, the this policy playing out in the background um, of the Democratic uh, primaries, um, and so it's been just a really interesting time to be in D.C. Tell us about the varying degrees report from 2019 yeah sure so uh every year uh we every year for the past three years we have done a survey that it's nationally representative about americans perceptions and knowledge of higher education um, we really wanted to get an idea of how americans feel about higher education um, how we should hold it accountable if at all how it should be funded who who should be the primary funder, whether it's a social good or a, or a private good. Um, we also ask a lot of questions about people's knowledge of higher education, um, how old they think the average student is, uh, how many people do they think um, are borrowing loans, questions like that, just to get an idea, or, or whose loans are in default, just to get an idea of where do people's perceptions meet with uh, reality? Do people really understand what today's college students look like? Because we know that today's college students are actually a much more diverse group than people realize or recognize. And we have to uh, make policies that meet these students where they are. What are you seeing as the changes? What are the trends in the perceptions? The, the trends have stayed relatively stagnant over the past three years. And we have, um, you know, we just like any good research, the research has evolved over the years and we've really tried to like hone the questions and make sure we're asking the things that we really want to ask. Um, but in general, there is a sense 
that higher education does not find the way it is. There's a lot of concerns about affordability and access. Um, and then there's sort of a divergent viewpoint among Democrats and Republicans because we also, because, you know, I sit in Washington, D.C., and so we're often very concerned about what's happening with these policy conversations. So when we look at differences between Republicans and Democrats, there's a divergent viewpoint over whether uh, de that Democrats view higher education more as a good for society and Republicans view it more as a private good um, that is an individual benefit. And so it's interesting seeing those interplay of answers year over year um, and seeing how people are kind of steadfast in their opinions, even as I think the higher education uh, education affordability question, and even what's going on in the primaries right now with, you know, today Elizabeth Warren just announced that she's, if she becomes president, she's going to use executive power to basically forgive lots of debt of Americans, lots of student loan debt. Um, and so it's interesting to see that play out on the, on the survey and see people um, dig in on their opinions. Yeah, everybody that just finished making their last payment is going to be frustrated with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot of questions about the legality of doing things through executive order, as there is questions of, like, the the Trump administration and how they're interpreting right. the education right. department is interpreting. So it's, it, there, it, it, it has been an interesting day of sort of how and how would we do this and why would we do it this way? And is that even a good idea? Um, so. You know, since we're talking about, uh, since you brought that up, I'm I'm looking at your report, and what's one of the things that's interesting to me is the comparison between opinions between Democrats and Republicans. And um, the one chart in particular, um, Republicans seem to be more confident that they can find good, stable jobs with only a high school diploma than do Democrats. Yeah. And I think that also feeds into their belief that higher education is a private good so or it's just a private good for individual benefit. They're more likely to say that as well. Um, and I think that just goes to show that if you already think it's a private good with individual benefit and you already think, you know, you can find a job without with only a high school degree, um, then your ideas surrounding uh funding or free college or forgiving all debt are going to be influenced by those opinions, by those perceptions. Well, right, because why should you be taxed to pay somebody else's student loan if you yourself did not take advantage of going to college or university and don't think that's a necessary thing, correct? I mean, that's one of the ways that, that people might think about that. Yeah, there's a couple interesting things going on on here one is that um almost everybody there's like it's only a it's really neck and neck when you look at so when you look at the data for this question there are lots of well-paying stable jobs that people can find with only a high school diploma or GED. actually most people agree with that the <laughs> most of the general public it's i think it's something like 62 percent. Yeah. Um, we've tried to ask this question a number of different ways. We're always shocked at the response. I think the year before this, the way we asked the question is um, basically it was something like there are lots of well-paying stable jobs that people can find if you don't have a, high, a college degree or something like that. 
And then people agreed with that. And we thought that was kind of a weird answer. And so my thought was last year, how we could ask it was basically, you know, is there lots of well-paying stable jobs that people can find with only a high school diploma or GED? And going into fields with that question, I, I think all of us were like, there's no way people agree to this question. Like, there's no way people think you can find well-paying, stable jobs with only a high school diploma or a GED. And we were absolutely floored to see the uh, the responses that people actually think that this is, is true. Um, and so we're trying to figure out what is going on with this question because all the actual data we have out there about educational attainment and income and job stability does not prove this is not true. This is a really weird disconnect between the American public and um, what the data show us on the ground about earnings and educational attainment um, and the types of jobs people, people have. So this year, we're asking the question, we're actually about to go into field again with this survey. So it's going to go into field at the end of this month or the beginning of February. And we're following up this question with an open-ended response that if you say you agree with this, that there are plenty of jobs, if you only have a high school diploma or GED, that you need to name a couple of those jobs. So I, I thought you were going to say you were going to follow it up with, are you nuts? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of is my like, like. Because I think we're all like, like what? Like, like what? And so what's really interesting is we, um, we do focus groups a lot, uh, pretty much every year uh, with various groups of people. Um, and, and it usually helps influence the questions that we ask on this survey. Um, and I think leading into this survey, we ask people a question like this. And people generally agreed. And when we followed up with like, well, what, what do you think those jobs are? Um, the younger people, so we were interviewing a lot of students, they would say like YouTube star, which <laughs> right. is kind of, Absolutely. I mean, that's yep. not what I would call the mine a well-paying stable, hey, stable job. But that's, I that's stable. That's, YouTube stardom yeah, is stable. That's, that's a... what people are thinking. That's why we've asked an open-ended <laughs> follow-up because we kind of want to see like, what are these responses that people give? And we also want to see um, whether the responses people give once we, again, this is going to be open-ended, so we're going to have to bin them together and kind of figure out what these different sectors are that people think um, you're able to get a well-paying, stable job. But um, it could also be the case, I mean, it might be like sort of these one-off, like, well, you could be a YouTube star, like anyone can make it in America. Um, But it could also be that a lot of people think that um, certain jobs don't require uh, post-secondary education. They might really be, even though we say on the survey repeatedly that when we mention education beyond high school, we're talking about all educational opportunities, not just, you know, associate's degrees, bachelor's degrees, and and beyond. So I'll be interested to see if people list things that um, actually do require a degree and people didn't realize that, or or some sort of like post-secondary credential. People didn't realize that when they answered the question, um, that there are plenty of jobs, that the jobs they end up listing actually do require post-secondary education. Yeah, and, and what does it mean by lots? You know, there are lots I of I know, that's always, the thing, that's always the thing. Like, we try to make it very general, like lots of well-paying, stable jobs to see if, that's why we're still like, how did 60-something percent of people think that this is true? 
because it just doesn't add up to me. <laughs> no, it's interesting. 50 Fifty percent of Democrats um, agree with that statement that there are lots of well-paying yeah, stables. Yeah, it's like but, right on the but seventy the but seventy-six percent of Republicans agree with that. So it's a yes. substantial difference. It's a substantial difference, but there's still this general belief, and we just don't know what to do with this finding. Like there's this, I mean, especially because again, we are very transparent on the survey about what we mean by educational opportunities after after high school. And we're very clear with this question that we mean you would stop with only a high school diploma or GED. Another question we've added to help us understand this, the finding of this question a little bit better um, is one, we have a question that we asked later on in the survey that is the comfort level of someone um, themselves, uh, you know, going into higher education or um, recommending a pathway of higher education to, to um, their children. And as it turns out, like most people would recommend their children pursue a degree. Um, we ask it about associate's degrees, about bachelor's degrees, about apprenticeships, about technical certificates, and like everybody sort of has this positive feeling about recommending it to, um, to their own child or, or for themselves. Um, and, and that holds true for Republicans and Democrats. So despite this sort of feeling that there's lots of well-paying, stable jobs, you know, people want to go, people actually kind of recommend to their family members that they should go pursue higher education, um, despite this finding. Uh, this year, we've added to that battery. We've added um, that, like, would you recommend a child of yours or to just stop with a high school diploma or GED? So is it that people feel, you know, we're trying to get a sense, is it that people feel that for others, there are lots of well-paying, stable jobs that people can find with only a high school diploma or GED? Or is it, and then once you personalize it, people are like, but heck no, I would never recommend my own child just stop with that degree. Um, so again, this will be really interesting to see and sort of, um, you know, dig a little further into the nuance of how people are actually perceiving education beyond high school. You know, the one thing that I liked about um, your study was is that there just seems like there's been so much press, so much news about questions of the return on investment and the value of a higher education degree and all that kind of stuff. But looking at your data, it it um, it kind of restores a little hope for me because there's it's really high percentages of people. Um, yeah, it's not only that, you see this divergence um, between the Democrats and Republicans over the social good private good, which I think makes a lot of sense, um, given, uh, given, you know, just the general where both like Democrats and, and Republicans fit on this issue in general. But when you look at the funding questions we've asked, both Democrats and Republicans support investment in higher education from both states, from the federal government. They actually feel very positively about their local institutions. I mean, certainly Democrats feel, you know, both more positively, want more, you know, even more funding compared to, to Republicans. Not even more funding. They feel, they, feel um, they agree with that statement even more, that we should put more funding into higher education. Um, but 
the but Republicans still agree with that too. So I think there is this sense that we should be investing in our institutions of higher education, that people should have an affordable affordable pathway into higher education. What's the most surprising information out of all this for you? I think it's probably that finding is is I think we've heard so much about um, Republicans. Pew has a has a survey out there that um, shows that. Uh, Republicans have turned sharply negative about higher education institutions in America compared to how they were feeling years ago. I mean, there's a lot going on with that sentiment um, that they, they actually will say that higher education is leading the country in the wrong direction. Um, right, and, that they've become more indoctrination camps than yeah, uh, higher education. Right. Yeah, and so there, there's just a lot going going on with that. I mean, that, that finding is couched in a survey that's about lots of institutions um, that are going to cause like a very strong opinionated feeling. They ask about the media. They ask about churches. They ask about, so you think about all that, how your mind starts getting primed, like answering questions about unions and higher education and churches and, uh, you know, the media, given everything that's going on in the current atmosphere. Also, the general demographics over the years of Republicans have shifted. Um, the general demographic of Republicans are, you know, whiter, more male, um, and tend to be less educated as of, you know, the last presidential election. And so that certainly is going to shift some of the internal dynamic of how Republicans felt years ago when the, when the demographic of Republican was different to the demographics of Republicans. Um, of Republicans now, um, but it also depends on the way you ask the question. So we asked whether people felt positive about a higher education, agree or disagree, and people, for the most part, regardless of party identification, agreed with that statement. Um, whereas Pew asked it, do you think, do you feel positive or do you feel negative? So the person would have to input positive or negative. Um, so next year, we're actually asking it both ways to see how it kind of changes people's answers. Like if you if you have to agree with a positive statement, are you more likely to just agree with a positive statement? Or if you have to insert positive negative, does that dramatically change, um, you know, how people of different parties or we're doing we're talking a lot about party demographics here, but there are a lot of other demographics we looked at. Does it change fundamentally some of the other demographics we've looked at? Here's another interesting question. Um, higher education in America is fine how it is. That's a, this, this question that you've uh, got in your survey is um, sobering for us, and it reminds us that we need to be um, vigilant about keeping up to date or whatever it is. But higher education yeah. in America is fine how it is, and what this survey shows is that um, only what twenty seven percent agree with that? Yeah, it's um, it's it's about a third. One third, thirty three percent. In previous years, it was about one in four. So, um, it's you know it's, it's hard to say with the margin of error whether or not people are feeling more positive from like one in four in twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen to one in three, but still overwhelmingly people think it's not fine the way it is. We do ask a follow-up question to this that's open-ended that's sort of like, well, why do you feel that way? Um, and people, uh, sort of overwhelming response 
is um, cost and affordability, which I think makes a lot of sense, um, especially given everything that we've, I mean, basically seen in the news for the past four or five years where there's a constant, um, you know, there's a constant talk about student loan debt, how it's 1.5 to 1.6 trillion dollars, what that means for a generation of students who have now have debt and what that means for, you know, millennial and generation Z mobility. Um, and to the past couple of presidential races where I think ever since, you know, 2012, 2014, we've really ramped up a conversation of whether or not uh, college should be free. And now with this primary season, going even a step further with whether or not we should forgive student loan debt. Um, beyond cost and affordability, what are the other leading comments that people make when they say they disagree with the statement that higher education is fine? I mean, it is overwhelmingly cost and affordability because I think those issues are just at the forefront. But you'll hear other things. Like, again, this is an open-ended response, so it's kind of like people can say multiple things. So almost everybody sort of touches on affordability and cost. Um, I think there's a sense um, from some that higher education isn't teaching what you actually like need to know in the workforce. Um, and then there's a little bit of that um, that sentiment uh, that that students are being like indoctrinated but that is like that falls I have to say like way 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 down when you aggregate the answers up it's mostly cost and affordability issues so what you're saying is most people feel good about higher education they just feel like we're too expensive yeah for the most part I I think that's right I also think that people don't have a they don't have a recognition of where higher education is sort of falling short or how different today's students look from what they perceive students to look like and why we need policies um, that could, that could uh, help those students. Yeah, so I, I live in southern Utah, which means that I drive a truck. <laughs> Right, and, so. and and I would say I'm fine with my truck, but I do have a little bit of an issue with access and affordability for my truck because <laughs> well, <laughs> right. it's kind of expensive. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Quality has a cost, and that's one of those challenges we 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 absolutely need in higher education circles. We need to find ways to drive the cost down. Um, but I think that the public needs to understand that quality is expensive. Of course, for us yeah. in Utah, we're we're like the second least expensive tuition of any state in the country. So it's it's more affordable here than it is in a lot of places. Tuition at SUU for years is uh, less than seven thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we what we're missing and what's really hard to ask about is our questions about return on investment. We're trying to get savvier with, you know, how much do you think a student should borrow? Um, we have started asking as of last year, a question that's a, that who should pay what share at different income levels, especially again, has, as we've started talking more and more in the policy space about, should things be free? Like, how can we be more equitable 
with um, access and affordability within higher education. So we asked a question for low income, middle income, and high income. Of course, we define that because everybody thinks they fall somewhere within middle income. So we're very explicit in how we're defining low, middle, and, and high income. And we asked, you know, who should pay, who should pay what share, um, who should pay the most out of all the actors and who should pay the least for each of those income categories, um, which I, I found to be very fascinating. So a lot of people thought the lowest income individuals uh, shouldn't really pay much for higher education. And I think that makes a lot of sense that the government should pick up the tab for people who have low and middle income, especially for Democrats. They believe that middle income people, that the government should really do more to pick up the tab for low and middle income. For Republicans, it was more that the government should pick up the tab for lower income individuals and less about middle income individuals. But then once you get into high income earners, which I think we define as those with family incomes over 135, um, 135,000, that, um, that the student and the student's family should pick up more of the share from a, in a combination of, you know, earnings, savings, and loans. Um, so there's this general sense of, uh, benefit, benefit should be targeted towards uh, students at different income levels. Um, I was interested in um, your, one of the fun things about this report is that you you, you have all this uh, data based on Democrat, Republican, Independent. Um, it's interesting that the and we live in a very red state, Utah. But it's interesting that Republicans are more satisfied with higher education than Democrats. Is that because of the cost, that Republicans are okay with it being more expensive? I mean, it's hard to say exactly why they're more okay with that. I mean, I think everybody's, like, you know, generally not okay with higher education the way it is. Um, but I think a lot of this goes into the, again, how Republicans are feeling about it being more of an individual good where yeah. it's like, well, up to the individual to purchase that good, buy or be, beware, um, whether or not they need a degree, it's the individual's choice and what they choose to go into higher education for while that's on them. Um, and so I think that's, that's probably feeding into that sentiment, but it's hard to know exactly. It's hard to know. Yes. Yeah. There's, um, um, Another one of your questions, which of the following is least important for colleges and universities to do? So this is like golf. The bigger the score, the less important it is. Which of the following is the least important for colleges? And 53% of those you surveyed um, promote engaged citizenry. And then the second least important is assist students with personal and intellectual growth. And I think that a lot of university um, employees would say those are the two would, most important things those, we do. Yeah, those are yeah. right at the top. Yeah, and the, and the reason why we asked that question was to actually highlight that disconnect in a way. I mean, I've I run a, a previous survey of current and prospective students. That was at this point, I don't know, five years ago. That was one of my first projects here five or six years ago. Um, and the findings there show overwhelmingly the reason why students are entering higher education is because they want a good career and a good, like a well-paying job. And that doesn't mean they want to make a million dollars. I mean, it's wonderful if you can, you know, make a million dollars, but they want that stability. They want a career and they want to 
they want to feel invested in their career and they want to have that that payoff um like so i think i think that is um that is tantamount for both parents and students again we we see this in all the focus groups we run too we've done parent focus groups and this is what they want for their for their children it's jobs 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 but we find this disconnect when we're talking with I would say traditional four-year institutions, um, the more like residential research universities, that they don't want to consider themselves um, workforce programs, basically. They want to consider themselves, you know, educating somebody to be a global citizen. And there's more to pursuing higher education than just that. And while that is true, uh, at the same point, you have to understand the perception of people and what they think higher education is to them. And what they think it is to them is, something that's going to prepare them for a job. And along the way, if, you know, the global citizen, you know, a liberal arts education when done right is going to, to help somebody become an informed citizen and have all these offshoots. But that's not what people are holding up primarily in their mind. Yeah, there's a lot of secondary benefits, but they're, that, that um, they get along the way, but they're coming for a job. It's and I suspect that that now I'm I'm just guessing from the tone of your voice versus the old grizzled tones of our voices that you're significantly younger than we are. I'm just guessing that. And well, I, she does have a four month old. She does have a four month old child. So, so I. I, I, yeah, I uh, but I, the reason I say that is I I dare say that 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 has changed since Scott and I were in school. Um, as undergraduate students, in a significant way, I think I think that if you were, uh, I, I, we've had guests on that have said this very thing that if you had run this same question by uh, a group of students in the '70s and '80s when we were in college and university, that they would have said our most important thing that we're here to do is learn, and that the job thing may have been second or third, but it but it has certainly risen to the top with the current generation of, of incoming students. They, they see that as the university's primary role. Yeah, and I think that's because, I, you know, more and more people are having to enter higher education in hopes of securing a stable job, despite what they're saying on this survey about there being plenty of jobs. Like, we know <laughs> that enrollment, for the most part, has been growing. I know they've sort of stagnated and declined over the past few years. That's because, you know, we're in an economic recovery, but as soon as we hit another recession, we'll see those enrollments tick upwards again. Um, and I think there's never before have students been this invested in their education through having to borrow loans um, or having to front, you know, their own earnings or their parents' earnings to help pay for it. And so more people are in higher education than ever before and more are looking to see a serious return on investment because they're making a serious investment of their own money in ways that in the 70s, you did. Yeah. I mean, we started to see more lending in the 80s, but um, not to the levels that we now have. Um, so I think I think a lot of that is feeding into it. And I think I think higher education should have these lofty pursuits of, you know, making people having an informed citizenry. Um, this gets back into the public good of higher education. But I think what's happening is that higher education is not doing a good job explaining why um, sort of the economic impact of, of the degree um, be, you know, why liberal arts, why you would take in a four-year degree, why you would have both 
depth of a major and breadth of all the other requirements that you have to do. I think, you know, students in our focus groups are always like, why do I have to take, you know, women's studies 101? And it's like, because that's going to give you so much, it's going to open your world to being able to think critically on your feet and connect things in different ways that you might not understand now. But instead, they're just like, why do I have to fill out why do I have to do all these arbitrary requirements? I could be in and out of school much more quickly and I wouldn't have to go into as much debt. Um, just today, the Center for Education and Workforce uh, published a report showing that actually the economic returns to a liberal arts degree are quite high. Um, and, and I mean, I've, known, I've, I've felt that and known that all along that, you know, we're doing a disservice saying like, oh, people shouldn't be English majors. Or people shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. Like people should only go into the STEM fields, um, or you know, pursue like sort of vocational or technical interests, so that they see this return on investment. And as it turns out, over a lifetime, these liberal arts degrees don't pay off at the beginning, but they do pay off over over time. And I see that in my own field of work. Most of my colleagues, including myself, have a liberal arts background. I mean, I have a French degree. Do I use my French degree every day? No, I don't use my French degree every day. But I learn, I use the skills I learned when getting that French degree every single day of my life. Yeah, my, uh, my, I have two undergraduate majors, but one of them was philosophy, the other one economics. So my leading major was philosophy. And I, I'm a philosopher every day. I think, I read, I write, I engage people in interesting conversations. So I, and those are the skills employers are always looking for, right? Yeah. And they say we have a, we have a, you know, we have this, uh, this, this gap of knowledge. And when you press on employers what that gap is, they say that we can't find employees that can critically think, that can write, that can do all these things that a liberal arts education, again, when done right, when high quality, um, is going to equip students with. So, Rachel, I think this is one of the disconnects in in thinking, um, we certainly see it um, as something that freshmen struggle with a bit, and I think the public generally, but um, we should stop thinking about majors and thinking about careers or goals because, for example, if you want to be an accountant, you've got a path. You probably have to have an accounting degree, but if That's you right. want to be um, a researcher at a think tank, You've got a whole variety of degrees that you can take. <laughs> yeah, you can't major in researcher at think tank. That there, there is no ma undergraduate major for university president either. Right. No. Exactly. So, so you say this is what I want to do. Okay, that's the career I want. These are the options for majors, and then you pursue your major to get your career. Instead of uh, a lot of people say, I want to major in whatever history. Um, but I don't know what I want to do with that. Yeah. Um, and then That's, when, and then when they graduate, they don't know what they're going to do because they don't know what they, they didn't know what they wanted to do when they started and they still don't know what they do when they finish. But if they know what they want to do, then it's a great preparatory degree. Yeah. And I think, I think that's where it's really hard for higher education to explain to these students. And I don't think we've ever done it well. And, and previous generations, we haven't had to because it wasn't as much of a personal investment as it's become. But you know why it is why these um, why these degrees are so valuable. 
uh, why a liberal arts degree is actually is actually valuable. Um, it is it is really funny because I've been on uh, a lot of different like you know panel discussions here in, in DC, and every once in a while, uh, the panel discussions will come up, and somebody will inevitably say or ask, you know, well, uh, maybe we should prioritize how we you know focus investments to be only in only give students a subsidy that are enrolled in certain programs. And I'm just, I just think that, you know, losing the forest for the trees, you know? So it's, 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 I sit on the panel and I usually ask after somebody asks something like that or says something like that, I say, well, what do you have your degree in? What's your undergraduate degree in? Who in this room, like, you know, who in this room has a degree that's basically from like the social sciences or liberal arts? Um, like who, if, even if you went to an, uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin, which is a huge research university. Um, but I was in the College of Letters and Sciences, as are most students at most public institutions. They're enrolled in the, co- in, in the big research institutions. They're going to be in the, like, the liberal arts program within the, um, within the university. And that's where most people who work these jobs, where I'm at in Washington, D.C., that's where they got their start. So I think it's really short-sighted to, suddenly turn around and say, well, we really need to focus where we're sending students and we need to subsidize uh, like different, you know, avenues of higher education that way when it, you know, as it turns out, that liberal arts degree is still really deeply important and it has a really good return on investment as we saw today with the um, data that just came out. I've, I've often thought that, that one of the ways we could stop that disconnect a little bit would be to engage students from the very beginning in talking about what it is that they want to do for a career, not necessarily pushing them into a, uh, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, as you suggested, if they're, if, if somebody's going to be a, a CPA, then they're going to take accounting and, and that's a pretty easy thing. But if people, if, it, if people come in as many freshmen do and literally have no idea what they want to do, and in, in many cases, even why they're there, they haven't discovered their why, then then oftentimes, I think taking some sort of an assessment, a career um, or, or interest or, you know, one of those, one of those types of, of uh, uh, t- tests that are, that are given can help focus people's thinking. I think, President, we're actually considering um, – having a battery of those things for our incoming freshmen, aren't we? Uh, that, to get them thinking about where it is that they want to end up. So if they say college president, or if they say researcher at Think Tank, or if they say washed up unemployed musician, which is what I am, uh, then, then um, they know how to get there. Um, or at least that they can see that there are a number of pathways in the, in the cases, because my undergrad is in, is in music, um, Scott's is in philosophy, yours is in French. And neither one of those, none of those things would have been considered necessarily as direct. In fact, uh, I dare say our path, the, the longer that you live your life, the more circuitous your path becomes. And so so it, it's, it's actually a great idea to know what you'd like to end up doing and seeing that there are a number of ways to get there, I think. Is that Yeah, that I think it's, yeah, I think it's also important to, I think too, you know, careers when you enter college, and, and I had a lot of exposure to different career 
growing up. Um, just because I lived on, you know, I lived on the East Coast. I grew up in an upper middle class family. And so I've actually taken a class on in grad school about, um, you know, how at different ages, the number of careers, um, you know, children, adolescents, as you kind of go through high school and into college, uh, career exposure. Um, and even though I was sort of in that category that probably had exposure to more different types of careers than others because of the educational attainment of my parents um, and the income level and where I grew up, I still, like, my eyes were opened when I went to college and university to discover there are all these jobs I never knew anything about. And then even further, I remember watching, I remember watching The West Wing when I was in college and um, them talking about think tanks. And I remember thinking to myself, like, think tank, that's a cool job. I don't know what that is, but that, that seems to me that would be kind of a cool job. And like, little did I know a few years later, I would actually end up working in the think tank. Um, but I mean, I had no real idea of what that was, what that actually looked like. It just kind of seemed like a cool job I heard mentioned on television. Um, and it wasn't until I started even going to grad school or I, I took I took a couple years in the workforce in between undergrad and grad school. I mean, that's when I was exposed to a lot of different jobs and careers. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard when students enter higher education because they have a they think they have a firm idea of, I want to do X, but they don't even know all the different career paths that are open to them. So I think an assessment would be great, but also just assessing what things do they really love to do or really interested in and mapping out what careers could that possibly link to? Because um, in, in today's job market, like there are so many different types of jobs. You know, we, we have a great concern for our rural students in that very same thing. You you suggested you'd, you'd benefited from your upbringing. It, if you grew up in a really small remote town, it's it's hard to know what jobs are available. Um, you, there are only a handful in your town. Um, exactly. Well, and if you're in a town, you've you've if if you grew up in a small rural place, many of those young people are torn between uh, if I leave and get a degree, then I can't live close to my family. Right. So, That's right. Yeah. So a lot of them are choosing uh, very low-paying jobs so that they can stay with their family. And then some get lucky and are able to do it. But as our world becomes more and more uh, online, the opportunities for work in these rural places is going to keep growing. And I think that will help propel a desire for higher education in in some of these rural spots. I'm fascinated by, um, we've talked a few times about um, personal benefit, public good, those kinds of things. I'm looking at one of the questions in your survey, who should be more responsible for funding higher education? And um, it's comparing silent generation baby boomers all the way up to Generation Z. Was that question asked, do you know, Rachel, was the question asked the government because it is good for society or students because they personally benefit? Is that the way the question was asked? Uh... Let me tell you why I'm asking that question. So the, the, way, the way it looks on the chart, um, that may be the way the question was asked. But I'm, I'm thinking of my mother who would – if she was alive, was a member of the silent generation. She could pay all of her tuition costs with a 
with the equivalent of a part-time minimum wage job. And so for the silent generation, it wasn't that difficult for someone to pay their own expenses. And so it's got uh, 39% of the silent generation believe government should pay the full cost for higher education. And then as you go to baby boomers, it's 55%, and Generation X, 70%, to Generation Z at 82%. And I'm wondering if it's um, all philosophy, personal, private good, good for society, or if it's related to how much the cost of education has grown for each of these generations. I think it's the cost of how much things have, have really uh, grown. So, I mean, I think, I think there's a general sense from um, the silent generation and baby boomers of there's, there's just a disconnect of how much um, generation Z and uh, millennials have really had to invest in their own education, how they are really much more debt reliant um, and how, um, you know, baby boomers were really able to build not the, sil- the silent generation aside, because they didn't need to go to higher education to secure good jobs. Um, and if yeah. they did, it was yeah. it was like more elitist. Um, and so the more elite families sent their kids. And it was really only like the baby boomers that were and, and, and the returning GIs that really, you know, opened up the pathways into higher education where we started seeing federal funding and, and, and a changing labor market and, and all of those things. So I think a, a, a lot of it is, uh, the disconnect of the silent generation and the baby boomers who sort of either didn't really need a higher education, um, had, you know, very protected, unionized jobs, um, and had a more affordable pathway if they did need higher education um, compared to today's students. I know, you know, uh, Representative Virginia Fox, who has been chair of the education committee in the House when the Republicans are um, when the Republicans were last in power, um, and now she's ranking member. I mean, she had a statement a few years ago that was basically like, kids these days are really like complaining about higher education. And when I was their age, I just worked my way through like the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and these kids just kind of have to help themselves. Um, and I, I looked up how expensive it was for her to attend University of North Carolina Chapel Hill back when she attended it and as it turned out like she'd only have to work basically part-time to cover her tuition whereas like you could work more than 40 hours a week right now as a student at minimum wage and you would not even come close to covering just the tuition bill not to mention living expenses at UNC Chapel Hill Um, so I think that's where you know some of that disconnect is coming from of like well I mean these you can just work your way through and it's just not true anymore because there's a couple things going on. The cost has gone up and wages have stagnating. So the purchasing power of a wage hasn't changed and a lot of our aid hasn't kept pace well, um, and, with the growing need. Well, and the other thing that's changed is, is when uh, Steve and I were going to college, uh, we're baby boomers. Um, the state was paying about 70% of the costs and uh, tuition was paying about 30%. And today it's, at least in our state, the state is now paying just under 50% of the cost. But in many states— And we're a good state, yeah. Yeah, and we're a great state. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of states, this, the, the percent of it is continually dropping. Yep. So you have more people entering, less money to go around. And you see sort of this 
cyclical recovery with every recession, the state loses some investment and then it increases, but it just never comes back to the previous level. So then another recession hits um, and it just takes more money away from the system and all of that money never usually returns. Um, so we just don't see that return in the way that we used to. And there's just a lot of people in the system and not enough money to go around and state budgets are fairly, you know, restrictive in what they can spend for. The federal government can keep throwing money into the system. We don't have to balance our budget, but a lot of states have to balance budgets. And a lot of states now have laws that really prevent any revenue um, gathering from their taxpayers. So it's like they're very, their hands are really tied um, of where they can send, where they're obligated to send money. They have to balance budgets and there's almost no way to grow revenue in some of these states. Yeah. The, one of the most uh, striking uh, differences is, uh, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, but in thinking about who's supposed to pay for the funding, who's funding higher education, uh, Democrats, 80% of Democrats answered your survey that government should pay the cost, whereas Republicans, it's only 37%. Which the other part of that that's interesting to me is that independents are at 70%. So... If these trends continue to hold with each younger generation believing more strongly that government should pay um, and with independence being on the government should pay side, uh, we may actually see some changes in funding in the future, even though uh, it appears as though the funding has been going in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, I think there, I mean, this, this goes back to the talk at the federal level of like, I don't think we're going to see state funding ever return to the levels where it once was. Um, the only way that'll happen is there is if there is the federal state partnership investment. And that's what a lot of the Democratic candidates are calling for. And I think there's this general sense of something needs to change with higher education on both sides of the aisle to make it more affordable, make it more accessible. But there's differing opinions of what that should look like. And even, you know, um, Democrats, like, where do you set that bar of, um, you know, if you have three, where do you set that bar? Um, and how would we accomplish something like that? Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. We could keep going. We will put, um, Steve, we're going to put this study online, I think, aren't we? We are. We'll, we'll have a link to the Varying Degrees 2019 uh, report on our website, if that's all right with you, Rachel. Of course. Yep. And you should stay tuned because I think the next iteration is going to be out, hopefully, fingers crossed. You just never know, but it should be out at the end of May. Awesome. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll have you back on uh, when the new report comes out and see what the findings show. Maybe, I, maybe we should wait till after the election. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I know. Things I might have. change. <laughs> yeah, I know. I hope we continue to get funding to do this because it will be interesting to see what happens with the election with that always, you know, happening in the background. But to be honest, it just feels like we're always in election mode here in D.C. because we kind of are at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that was the way it was designed, actually, that the House of Representatives would be always running. Exactly. So we can't really complain too much because that's the way they wanted it to be. Um, but maybe it's gone a little further than we'd hope. <laughs> anyway, thank you so very much. It's been a delight to visit with you. And um, this kind of data is, is so 
interesting to think about and talk about. It's, it was fun to read it, but it's more fun to talk to you about it. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah, it was great being on. I love talking to you guys about this. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest today, Rachel Fishman. She's the deputy director for research of the Higher Education Initiative at New America, a think tank in Washington, D.C., and she's joined us from her office there by phone. And we thank Rachel for phoning in, and we thank you, our dedicated listeners, for following us. We'll be back with another podcast soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.